Thank you for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Deborah Cohen here at the Too Much Medicine Conference in Helsinki. Deborah is an award-winning investigative journalist, a BMJ editor, and a medical doctor. In 2012, Deborah wrote a terrific investigative piece that was published in the BMJ, revealing the shocking truth behind sports drinks, which we will talk about today. Deborah, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking you to give our listeners a brief history of sports drinks and really outline who the big players are. So the history of sports drinks, they, it started back in really the 1970s with the Gators football team. I find that difficult to say, given football for me involves a round ball, but the, the Gators football team in, in the US, in, in Florida, their, their team physician wanted something to help them after the game, you know, for cramps and so on and so forth and, and started giving them water, uh, the players water with sugar and I think a bit of lemon flavouring. There were all sorts of bold claims made at the time that it helped with their re, you know, replenishing their hydration after the game and with cramps. But quite quickly, Quaker Oats caught wind of this and they developed a, a sports drink and they called it Gatorade. So hence it, it's from the Gators football team. And that soon took off, but really to sell it, it was, it was a similar time of that marathon running was, was taking off as well. So there was a market developing for, for, for some kind of sports drinks. And then what happened was they held a scientific symposia because they needed to create a science around sports drinks. So develop an evidence base, if you like, and we can talk about the evidence of that. But, and so they started recruiting scientists to um, do studies on the effectiveness of sports drinks and whether that's endurance, whether that's cramping, whether for, for also heat stroke was another thing they were interested in. So they started doing studies to try and prove, and I, and I use that term lightly, but to try and prove that, that Gatorade has a role in, in helping with these particular conditions. And then Pepsi-Cola eventually bought uh, Gatorade. And it, it was in the early 80s as well. In, in the UK, there was there's a drink called Lucozade. And when I was growing up, Lucozade is what you had. You got from a chemist and you had it when you were in hospital, you were sick because it was full of sugar and, you know, and, and other things. Again, questions around that. But it came in a cellophane, an orange cellophane casing. It was in a glass bottle and it was covered in cellophane. And it's you go into hospitals and people would have it next to their beds. But also around the same time, it was Ogilvy and Mather, I think the PR company was, they realised that, again, there was a big market in sports. So they rebranded Lucozade into a sports drink and they recruited Daly Thompson, who was um, a, te- a decathlete, the 80s gold winning, um, gold medal winner, actually. I think it was in the LA Olympics in 84. But anyway, they recruited him to, to help market this as something that was far sexier than sick people. You know, it's, it's not a great market. You associate Lucas Aid with being ill, but it's far, far more attractive to, to have it associated with sport. And so they then developed a campaign around it and again equally recruited scientists to study the use of sports drinks in exercise in particular and then there's Powerade which which is owned by Coca-Cola and equally have done a couple of studies but really it was it was Gatorade that led the way in the in the sports drinks market and there's been one or two others since but they're the three big ones. Why all of a sudden did the science of hydration gain traction? 
it, it was quite interesting. There's a few different kind of industries behind hydration. So there's the bottled water industry as well, and as well as the sports drink industry. So it was quite interesting when I was doing the investigation, you saw battles between the bottled water industry and the sports drink industry. So one of the battles was from the water industry, it was you don't want to drink sports drinks because they're full of sugar, you want to drink water. Then the sports drinks industry were one particular company and it was actually GSK that that made LucasAid. They were actually in schools in the UK saying to kids, you know, you you don't want to drink uh, water, you need to be careful of it because it can drop your sodium, so you need to drink a sports drink. So so the sports drinks manufacturers were, were trying to cast out on drinking water and the potential harms of drinking water. So there was quite an interesting duel going on between the two different industries. So the bottled water industry has been behind some of the, you know, you need to drink eight, eight litres of water, eight pints of water, eight glasses of water. I always forget, it varies from place to place, but this idea of eight glasses of water a day to stay properly hydrated. The sports drink industry were a little bit more sophisticated in, in their marketing. So they were developing algorithms, which made it sound really sciencey rather than this kind of message, I'll oh, just drink eight glasses. They were quite kind of scientific in their messaging and they were telling people that they needed to calculate their sweat, sweat loss, their work rate, to try and calculate how much fluid they would lose if they were doing an insurance event and then and then try and work out what they needed to drink and that changed a little bit over time but it was very much pushed that you had to drink a certain amount of fluid and there were ways of calculating that your losses you know obviously depending if your altitude and depending on the weather and depending on the conditions and so it seemed you know from from outside it seemed really scientific and really technical and gosh this this is this is high-tech science and and science they realise very quickly um, science sells, and and I think one internal message I'd seen from from Gatorade, scientists working for Gatorade and the marketers is that science sells, and so by creating this narrative that there's great science behind it, you know people will believe it. How strong is the science? I mean, what is the evidence? What are these companies actually claiming? So there was all sorts of things that, that we saw. So it was things like drink ahead of your thirst, your brain can't tell you when you're feeling thirsty, which was counter to everything I was taught at medical school. I thought, you know, it was your brain that, that told you when you were thirsty, um, your various mechanisms in your brain. But it was, you need to t- train your gut to tolerate more fluid, that sports drinks hydrate you faster. And it crosses your gut more quickly. Yeah, so there was kind of physiological endpoints, if you see what I mean. And that was, and they were some of the message, and it improves your performance. So there was the idea that almost you were going to turn into Mo Farah, you know, if, if, you, if you were to drink sports drinks, it was going to imp- improve your performance. But when we looked into it, and actually rather helpfully, when we approached the various companies, so Pepsi, Coca-Cola and GSK for, for their studies that underpin the claims that they were making, GSK helpfully gave us over 140 of their what they call clinical trials. Now, someone that is used to pharmaceutical research, which I normally look at, where there's phase one, two, three clinical trials, randomised control trials, these weren't clinical trials. They were studies of various types and often quite poorly conducted 
and also in situations that are not particularly generalizable. So you might be able to, and one, I remember one study, there were two arms. So fair enough, you know, you had a comparator, but they asked the participants to fast overnight. And then one group had water and one group had sports drink. Well, I mean, it's quite obvious that the sports drink are going to perform a bit better because they've had some an injection of sugar or glucose where the people with water haven't when you have been fasted overnight. But who in reality fasts overnight before they do many things, before they do an endurance event? I don't really think that is that's really what happens in the everyday world. So what you can infer, you can infer very, very little from that. And there were all sorts of kind of tricks that were going on in the in the studies. What about exercise associated hyponatremia? Isn't it a big problem in endurance races like marathons? So what happened was the um, during the Boston Marathon, there was a group of researchers at one of the Boston hospitals and they noticed that people were collapsing during the marathon. And one of the things that automatically happens if you see people collapse at a marathon is people come along to rehydrate them. But what they found in a study, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, so, you know, super high impact journal, that what they found is that people were over drinking. So they were sticking to these guidelines and obsessed with drinking fluids and their sodium levels were dropping in the blood and 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 so they were getting hyponatremia and then resulting with edema and cerebral edema so by creating this idea of this exercise induced dehydration which is what was coined by the sports drinks industry they actually created a genuine condition which was exercise induced hyponatremia so this idea that somehow you're going to get chronically or acutely dehydrated if you do a run, if you don't drink so many kind of litres of water or sports drink, actually did lead to people dying. Could you comment further on the industry's enlistment of academic researchers, sports medicine journals and just professional sports organisations generally? So what we found when we were looking at it, and it's something that I've looked at subsequently as well with relationship with Coca-Cola and scientists, particularly into obesity. So the idea that it, you can exercise and it doesn't matter what your sugar intake is because exercise is more important. And, and I had internal emails looking at the relationships with scientists with that, is that they enlist, they do enlist scientists. Now, you totally understand and accept that perhaps it's quite hard to get public funding for some of these studies into sports drinks and the efficacy of them because you're competing against things like cancer and, you know, heart disease and diabetes and other, other kind of illnesses that are, that are a burden on society. But they would recruit key opinion leaders and sometimes people that are quite junior in their career and then build them up into world experts in hydration. And I actually, funnily enough, I remember getting an email after I did the story in the BMJ and it was from Momsnet in the US. So, you know, a network for mums and they had a hydration expert and the investigation went against everything that they had found. We found there was no good evidence for the claims. I mean, the science was fairly poor and there was no good evidence for the claims that people were making. Uh, maybe in some a very small group of high performance individuals, but that is not generalizable to the, the majority of people. But 
why create a post of professor of hydration? Drink to thirst isn't a great seller. So what we said went against everything this professor of hydration had said. And then you have experts kind of around the world, but quite a few in the UK, Australia, in Canada, in, in the US, that revises to FIFA, to the International Olympic Committee, to UEFA. Their gui- guidelines were telling people, you know, some of these things you need to drink ahead of your thirst and, you know, remember, keep on drinking, don't dehydrate. And their guidelines... IOCs, FIFAs and so on were sponsored by the companies as well but also their advisors were people who were on the payroll of the companies and even the American College of Sports Medicine they'd had a lot of money from from Gatorade and their guidelines were were fairly conflicted and and also carry quite a few of these mantras. Now, they wrote to the BMJ back in 2012, and I've not checked this, is that they were going to employ proper methodologists to look at their guidelines and you'd use grade, so, you know, the methodology to, to do their guidelines. And then on the journals, and this is what we were told by several people, is, is that, well, also I looked into the journals and, and their main advisors were on the payroll of the companies. And people said to me that you just couldn't get studies published that showed that, you know, sports drinks didn't have any particular effect on performance. So you had a massive publication bias in favour of the studies that purportedly showed that it did have an impact on performance and various other outcome measures. And even then the science was poor quality. For me, given the kind of stories I normally do that result in quite serious patient harm, you know, buried harms in pharmaceutical trials or people that have died. For me, writing perhaps, in my mind, perhaps naively, sugary water isn't a particularly effective intervention if you want to make someone run faster and quicker and longer. Didn't seem to be that controversial, but when it came out, it was un believable the backlash and I was really surprised what I I found out that sports drinks were a real kind of it was almost criticizing religion if you criticized kind of the efficacy of a or questioned the efficacy of a sports drink Uh, it was it was a real surprise could you also briefly touch on the outreach of the industry to schools so one of the things, again, we found is is the kind of hydration guidelines had also filtered down to guidelines to schools. And so what was happening in the UK certainly is guidelines for schools. Kids were kind of having a break every 15 minutes to go and have a drink. And I spoke to sports teachers and they said, oh, it's happening. The kids are just needing to leave the, the field or the pitch or court and go off and have a pee, you know, because they didn't need to drink as much as they were being told. You can, you can go perfectly well for, you know, a kind of half an hour football match and not have to go and hydrate every, you know, every 10 to 15 minutes in British winter as well. I won't say who, who the person is, but they were a, a, a senior physiotherapist at, uh, at one of the national football and this might mean soccer but football leagues and they said that they'd done a study with the footballers and the footballers just felt sick because they had all this mon- uh, they had all this fluid kind of turning around their stomachs and so it just made them feel unwell when they stuck to the guidelines again they tried to publish their research and didn't get anywhere but but he was on the phone to me quite quite frequently after the story came out and was saying thank you you know thank you for exposing this because 
our our work with with our footballers is it, it has the opposite effect. They just feel like they've got fluids sloshing around the stomachs, which would kind of make sense uh, physiologically. So it was interesting. I mean, GSK were, were going around schools before the Olympics, so they did the science in schools campaign where they were talking to school kids about sports drinks. And that was where one of their criticisms of water came in. You know, you shouldn't be drinking water. You should be drinking sports drinks because the effect, potential effect of, of um, hyponatremia and therefore cerebral, cerebral edema. I mean, obviously, they didn't quite use those words to school, school kids, but they were cautioning against drinking water and kids should be drinking sports drinks because they had, you know, extra salts in it and that would prevent the effects of hyponatremia and cerebral edema. How have the sports drinks companies responded to all of this? I know we now have sugar-free sports drinks, and I'm wondering what's been happening in recent years since you ruffled a few feathers with the article. Ruffled a few feathers, I think, is an understatement. One of the things I remember, actually, when I was doing the story, and uh, my brother, who... You know, isn't he's 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 got science background. He's an engineer, but he he said to me just because when I was telling him I was working what I was working on, he said totally innocently, "How do sugar-free sports drinks work? How do they improve your performance?" I was just like, I hadn't thought about that. It's a really good question. And then we interviewed Tim Noakes as as part of it, and Tim Noakes interviewed in front of the camera, and he just burst out laughing because you know it kind of if you're relying on glucose, then you know how how does that improve improve your performance? But there is this idea of sugar sugar free sports drinks, and part of the problem is with this as well is in. Uh, maybe it is in the UK but certainly in the US parents I spoke to and and people who are nutrition uh, nutrition experts were concerned that sports drinks are seen as a health food you know it's what you have with sport therefore it must be healthy and that was one of the one of the concerns you know you, you go up to a kids kind of football game on a on a Sunday and you know there'd be sports drinks all over the place you know spoke to dentists who were worried about dental caries and you know how much sugar do kids really need so but when it came out there was incredible backlash I mean like I say it took me took me by surprise I was asked for my conflict of interest statement at one point which really puzzled me because I wasn't sure whose payroll I would be on I was was a BMJ full-time staff BMJ editor and it was bizarre that obviously I handed it over and I didn't have any conflict of interest I didn't know what they were hoping to to get but subsequently, it's one of those stories that keeps coming back and other journalists, and again, I won't name them, have reported on sports drinks since. And, you know, I've talked to them quite a lot about it. But there's one quite high profile journalist, sports journalist, who was concerned about the relationship between the NBA and, and Gatorade and wanted to look into it and investigate the evidence of, of sports drinks. And he'd been warned off it by so many people going near there because it's such a toxic area. And he was new to kind of science and health journalism. And for me, kind of conflicted guidelines, conflicted journals, conflicted evidence, key opinion leaders, distorted science wasn't new because I've done so many stories about industry funded trials and so on and so forth but for him it was something new and he was just shocked at how antagonistic the whole area was and he he was being warned off reporting on it which just 
in my mind seemed bizarre, which actually made him more determined to get something out. There's a real sense of kind of, they, you don't want to be questioned and you don't, you know, and it's, it's, it's not healthy. It's not healthy. Science is about learning, it's about development, it's about questioning your own evidence base. If you had the task of creating fresh hydration guidelines based on all of your work, what would they say? So, I mean, obviously I'm not training elite athletes. So, you know, I bear that in mind. And, and I realise seconds and milliseconds can make the difference between winning a race and, you know, and, and particularly in the likes of, you know, the Premier League, say, for example, you know, that's, it's intensity, you know, high press. I mean, I'm a Liverpool fan and, and watching Liverpool play, you know, the endurance and the performance that, that you need. So I'm, I'm no expert in that. But certainly for the general public, you know, drink when you're thirsty. If you're in the gym on a... Um, you know on a treadmill sweating it out then you can always pop off and have a quick drink if you get thirsty you're not going to keel over of well of dehydration anyway deborah before we both get too dehydrated i think that's a great place to end it it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you very much for your time today if our listeners would like to find out more about you or your work where should they go so you can find on twitter as deb underscore cohen and there's a recent story I've done is about a, a doctor convicted of manslaughter for the BBC, Dr. Bar Garber. So there's a long piece on the BBC on that. And, and then you can find plenty of my stuff in the BMJ as well. You've been listening to a BJSM podcast with Dr. Deborah Cohen. You can follow BJSM and stay up to date via the usual social media channels or download the BJSM app where you can find more podcasts, our latest articles and other content. As always... We hope you have a physically active day.